Welcome back, dreamers, to another helping of Dole Whip and Dreams. As always, I'm your host, Maddie Limerick, and today I'm joined by actress Heather Gilbert as we take a deep dive into the 2007 fan favorite, Enchanted. As you've come to learn here, our story cannot begin with the 2007 release of the film. We've got to go back over a decade to a very different script than the one that would eventually make it to screen. The initial script for Enchanted, written by Bill Kelly, was brought uh, to Disney's Touchstone Pictures and Sonafel Johnson Productions for a reported sum of $450,000 in September of 1997. Yes, that's right, $450,000 for a single script. Now, that script was written for three years, but it was thought to be unsuitable for Walt Disney Pictures at the time because it was racier and R-rated, though it was inspired by adult risque comedy films of the 80s and 90s, such as Fast Times at Ridgemont High and American Pie, and the first draft of the script even had Giselle being mistaken as a stripper when she arrives in New York City. It's funny, considering Disney... Disney-fied Times Square at the time that this was the story. Now, this movie was essentially sold to producers as Disney's answer to Shrek, something funny, adult-centered, but still in the spirit of Disney animation. Now, to the frustration of Kelly, the screenplay was rewritten several times. The film was initially scheduled for a 2002 release with Rob Marshall as the director. Uh, you now know him as the director of Into the Woods. I know. But he withdrew due to creative differences between the production and himself. And in 2001, director John Turteltaub was set to direct the film, but he left soon after, later working with Disney and Jerry Brockheimer on the National Treasure franchise. I know. Adam Shankman became the film's director in 2003, while Bob Scully and Mark McCowell were hired by Disney to rewrite the script once again. And again, and again. But in May of 2005, Ryder reported that Kevin Lima had been hired as the director and Bill Kelly would return to the project to write a new version of the script. Now, Lima worked with Kelly on the script to combine the main plot of Enchanted with the idea of being a um, loving homage to Disney's heritage. He created this visual storyboard that kind of printouts and covers the entire story of Enchanted from beginning to end, and when they pinned it down, it filled an entire floor of the production building. That's right, an entire floor of the production building. Now, something you might not know about storyboarding is it kind of takes every frame a frame of what we're going to see. So that includes all those, like, beautiful Easter eggs that we get early on and throughout the whole movie. Now, after Lima showed them to Dick Cook, the chairman of Walt Disney Studios, he immediately received a green light, and the project was given a budget of $85 million. Now, Enchanted was the first feature-length Disney live-action traditional animation hybrid since Disney's Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988. Though traditionally animated characters did not interact with the live-action environments in the same method as they did in Roger Rabbit's. I mean, however, there are some scenes where live-action characters share the screen with two-dimensional animated characters, um, like uh, the Queen in the Super Bowl talking to Nathaniel. Now, in ratio purposes for how it was filmed, it begins as 2.351 when the Disney picture logo and the Enchanted Storybook are shown, and then switches to a smaller 1.851 aspect ratio for the first animated sequence. The film then switches back to the 2.35 when it becomes live action and never switches back, and even though uh, for what remained of the animated sequences. And now, if it sounds like I'm speaking gibberish or Greek, 
I am for myself as well. These all come down to the speeds and the ratio of aspects of picture that they are filmed in. I'm sure someone who is listening out there could explain it better than I can. So go to our social media, follow that. Now, out of the 107 minutes of the film, 13 approximately are animated, and 10 of those 13 minutes are at the beginning of the film. Now, Lima tried to cram every single piece of Disney iconic imagery that he could into those first 10 minutes, which are done in traditional cell animation, which had not been done since the Heffalup movie, and it had really been kind of spun out since then from Disney. And the hand-drawn cells were done to be a pure tribute to Disney's fairy tale films. As most of Disney's traditional animation artists had been laid off after the computer graphic booms in the late 90s, yeah, it fucking sucked. The 13 minutes of animation were not done in-house, but by the independent Pasadena-based company Jim Baxter Animation. I'm sorry, James Baxter Animation. But James Baxter, the founder, was a prior Disney animator of the 90s renaissance, so... In a way, it came home. Now, with the filming, because of the sequence setting, the live-action scenes were filmed in New York. I know. If you've been to Times Square recently, you have you can pretty much imagine how difficult this was. Now, however, shooting in New York became problematic as it was in a constant state of new stores, scaffolding, and renovation. And while some of you might not think that's a problem, there's a continuity thing that they like to go for in movies, which is really difficult when literally there can be scaffolding one day and no scaffolding the next day, or those giant Broadway posters, which really date the filming of this for a theater fan. Um, one of those posters can be changed. Lestat did not run on Broadway that long. So it's one of those things that they had to kind of rush to get this done quickly because otherwise it was going to have to be replicated in post-production. The first scenes in New York, which feature Giselle emerging from a manhole in the middle of Times Square, which arguably are some of the most iconic modern Disney images. I love them. They were filmed on location in the center of Times Square. Now, because of the difficulties in controlling the crowd while filming in Times Square, general pedestrians were featured in the scene with hired extras placed in the immediate foreground. Because, like, you cannot black out Times Square. I remember when I worked there and they were filming the movie New Year's Eve, they just kind of went with it. So it's kind of what you got to (laughs) do. But however, the scene Lima found the most challenging was to shoot as the musical number, That's How You Know, in Central Park, which again, a whole bucket of other problems. The five-minute scene took 17 days. Yes, 17 days to finish due to the changing weather, which, uh, as you all know, if you live in New York, have been in New York during a peak filming season, you can have months and weeks where all you have is rain. So it only allowed seven sunny days for the scene to be filmed but it took 17. The filming was also hampered at most times by Patrick Dempsey's fans. That's right, we're listening to you, McDreamy fans. You got in the way of the movie. But this was also peak Grey's Anatomy, so when your hottie McToddy is going to be around, you're going to go looking for him. One of my favorite parts of this movie is the score. And this film score was written by accomplished songwriter, composer, and deep friend of the pod, Alan Menken, who has worked on... Any number of Disney films and musicals, I don't need to go into it, y'all know. And fellow composer Stephen Schwartz of Wicked fame wrote the lyrics for six songs, also composed by Megan. Megan and Schwartz previously worked together on the songs for Pocahontas and Hunchback, which are just some of the most beautiful songs we've had in Disney films. 
Mangan became involved with the film in the early stages, and in its development, he invited Stephen Schwartz to resume their collaboration, which I can't imagine two more iconic modern Disney music people to work on this than these two. Though I like to think and wonder what brilliant things Howard Ashman would have brought to this movie hadn't been taken from us so early. Now let's talk money, honey. Enchanted earned $8 million on the day it's released in the U.S., placing it at number one, which during this time, many of you will realize we were falling into a recession and things were happening. It also placed number one on Thanksgiving Day, earning $6.7 million to bring its two-day bonus to $14.6 million. Enchanted earned a gross of $127.8 8 million in the US and Canada as well as a total of 340.5 million worldwide. It was the 15th highest grossing film worldwide of 2007 and as of September of 2014 the movie's review had aggregated uh, on Rotten Tomatoes at a 93% approval rating which I don't think is high enough but man is it certified fresh. Now because it's a Disney movie we have to talk about merchandising which for many of you might realize there wasn't a lot for this movie. Now, the World of Disney Store was still open in New York before the Disney Store opened in Times Square, and I lived there at the time and don't remember much, and I was correct. They made a small line of dolls, a few enchanted items were made, some dress-up items of Giselle, but everything featured just the animated images of these characters because, especially for Amy Adams, Disney was leery about paying for lifelong uh, rights to um, uh, Adams's image. And while Giselle would be featured in 2007 in a couple holiday parades at Hollywood Studios and Magic Kingdom and I believe the Christmas Day parade that year, we don't see much of Giselle, which is ultimately heartbreaking. Now, there's so much more to talk about with this movie, but I want to get to the main show because our guest really brings some awesome things to the table. So if you're interested in more, dive online, see what else we missed, learn more about Enchanted. I could go on and on, but it's time we take the plunge. And after this break, I'll be right back with our guests. Dreamers, welcome back for today's show. I have Heather Gilbert with me. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Maddie. Thank you for having me. Heather, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Why don't you tell I'm everyone so excited at home? To be here. <laughs> <laughs> why don't you tell all of our listeners a little bit about yourself and how Disney has kind of played into your life? Oh my goodness. Well, Maddie, first of all, uh, I, I'm an actor, as um, I believe so many of your guests are in the entertainment field on this podcast. Um, but specifically, I am an actor who grew up in Orlando. So I like to think that I have a very unique perspective on Disney in general, because unlike most people for whom it's... Um, I guess a tourist dream or destination. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I grew up in a very admittedly privileged way of when people said, let's go to the park, I just assumed they meant Disney um, because <laughs> it was literally my backyard. I don't know what else to say. Um, I also myself uh, worked at Disney, as I believe most people in Orlando do at some point, whether they like it or not. Um, I was in the college program back in Merhamanaha. Uh, but those days are behind me and now I live in New York and I'm pursuing my dreams up here. So yeah, I think that's 
that's a pretty good summation of my life thus far. That's yeah. amazing. And I've Thanks, as, man. since well, living <laughs> since living in Florida now, um, even everybody in Orlando's like, you live ninety minutes away. What? And I was like, yeah, that's you know, it's I'm like, that's that's nothing. That's a commute from Brooklyn to Queens. So, exactly. <laughs> so and they're like, wow, you're down here so much. You know, it's it was one of those that when I picked uh, University of Florida where I go to grad school, I immediately went. I signed the paperwork and then went, oh, crap, how close am I to Orlando? And then it, was, it wasn't even a question for me when I saw that it was less than two hours. I was like, oh, well, I have to have an annual pass then. That's just something that has yeah, to happen. To. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, to. I mean, that's so good. And so I was really excited when you pitched this movie to me. Um, oh, I'm so glad. It's one I of this movie. It's one of my first movies I remember seeing after, like, transitioning like over 21 and like feeling like an adult and realizing like it's okay to like Disney movies again. Um, and I, I just moved to New York when this came out. And so it's like the most Disney and New York movie to come out at the same time. Oh my God. What a perfect combination for you because it's a Disney princess lost in New York. Just e like you. Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, I'm more of a little Disney villain lost in New York, but it's fine. That's so, true. Talk to I've me. heard you sing Poor Unfortunate Souls. It's excellent. You know, it's a, a few, a few people out there have, you know, it's, 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 it's a fun go-to, but why don't you talk a little bit about your connection to the movie? Oh my goodness. Well, this movie came out when I was in college and I was neither in Orlando nor in New York. Um, I actually had the biggest cultural shock of my life because I went to college in middle of nowhere, North Carolina. Um, and not that Orlando is like the world's largest metropolitan area, but when I say middle of nowhere, it was, there was nothing but my college. Um, so going to the movies in and of itself was an adventure and that was strange for me. And in a lot of ways, this movie, I think, crystallizes um, a really cool part of my own backstory because it is a Disney princess who makes her way to New York. And I don't know, I probably see the parallels of myself being the little girl from Orlando, and I'm like, don't worry, I'm going to go to New York myself, too. Um, but I think what I really, truly love about this story is it's both an homage a parody and at the same time straight up classic fairy tale um and i think what's so great about kevin lima's direction specifically is that he toes the line on all three of those aspects mm -hmm. he's making fun of the brand but at the same time giving classic homages to it and i would also argue pushes it forward into kind of the disney princesses that we're starting to see now with um with Rapunzel mm -hmm, and with Anna mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and even Moana a little bit you know you have this was kind of the I don't want to say she was the first princess to um kind of go up kicking ass but uh but she definitely was one of the first self-reflective mm -hmm. princesses and being aware that the world of Disney is not necessarily the only option right. and uh I think in that way it's a really cool little existential crisis of a film that uh, ends up happily ever after. So yeah, I love this movie. I really do. <laughs> it's, it's so true. It's all I could think of while I was, I, you know, I don't know why I thought it was a couple years later than it was, but then I realized that was pro, or, um, Tangled was just like two years later. Um, mm -hmm. But my thought was this was the most necessary transition film that Disney could have produced at the time. Absolutely. Um, it literally, Absolutely. it, 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 pointed out, um, I brought up in our Little Mermaid episode, that 
in 89 that the damsel wasn't always in need of saving, but this movie in 2007 is cementing that the damsel is no longer in need of saving. Um, right. That the damsel herself could save the day, which our next couple Disney um, princess movies, which would be um, Tangled, Princess and the Frog, Brave, um, Frozen, Moana. Yep. Um, none of those women needed somebody to help them save the day. You know, even in Frozen, Kristoff is there because, you know, he's there. But <laughs> that's a great way but to say it because he's there. Because he's there. <laughs> well, and um, we're recording this the weekend that Frozen 2 comes out. So I have a little information about the characters that we don't need to share. Oh, my God. Ha- so, have not seen it yet. Oh, don't we're, tell me. We're I'm not see it right after this. We're not. We're not talking about it at all. But um, but um, you know, it's one of those <laughs> things of that the damsel is no longer in need of saving, and Giselle is almost the most ridiculous version of the Disney princesses that becomes the most strong, um, and mm-hmm. and thought out woman, which I think is really important. Um, but just in a little digging, finding out that this was originally supposed to be like an R-rated. Fast Times at Ridgemont High American right? Pie film. Oh my goodness. What I found out, um, first of all, it was originally written to take place in Chicago, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. And then the reveal of Giselle was not that she dropped through a well and ended up in a pothole in New York, but that she ended up being the stripper yeah. in a bachelor party cake. Yep. Um, <laughs> and and even as the film went into development, um, there were still all of these ties with um, the character of Robert, the her eventual mm-hmm. man that she ends up with. He was even in like the third draft or so before the version that you and I saw. He was going to be married. Yeah. The entire film, which is sh- super shocking that yeah. they even let them write that down. If I'm going to be honest, yeah, well, uh, that I'm... was going to be an extramarital affair well, sort of situation. And it makes sense when like, it looks like it's not just Disney, but it was three studios together creating this film. Um, right. That... And wasn't um, Barry Schoenfeld on it? Yes, as well? I believe. Um, I believe so. Adam's family. And mm-hmm. this was actually in development around the time that he was making the Adam's family because um, Enchanted, it's, I can't believe I almost said Frozen because we were talking yeah. about Frozen. Uh, but Enchanted was actually in development as far back as the early 90s. Yes, yes. And, and the, it took them a long time to actually get their act together. Well, and it was the scripts. It. Nobody could get happy with a script because Disney was like, no, 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 we can't do this. Like, it's just not, mm-hmm. it's not something they can do. And it was a lot. And it was, I mean, it wasn't until 99, but like, 99 to 2007, even for a Disney film, is a really large development time considering this movie took about two years to make once pre-production started on this version. Um, But knowing most of that was the 13 minutes of animated time was what this movie took because it only took them about six months to film um, Mm -hmm. in, in the summer of New York, which I can't believe. I mean, good on that makeup team. Nobody sweats that whole movie. And good on him. No, unless unless that was the first time that you CGI to like faces, <laughs> which I I can neither confirm nor deny. I cannot confirm or deny. How, yeah. how do you know that yeah. everyone looks flawless? It took. I can't set, imagine. I, I think I read it took like seven days to film that scene. So like. Uh. Uh, I mean, which is understandable because you live in New York. I've lived in New York before, so like you know what it's oh, like New trying York to. Summers co- are not fun. Well, they and, are not fun. They. Ugh. No, you go. I'm sorry. No, no, you're I'm good. Sorry. You're good. You're good. <laughs> well, and it's also just trying to control that many extras that are being paid, but also people that are watching. Because mm-hmm. this was also peak Grey's Anatomy um, 
uh, fandom for Patrick Dempsey. So they said a lot oh, of the yeah. scenes were hampered by Grey's Anatomy's fans in New York. Like, it was a really hard go of it. I am so sure. Sh- and I know they rehearsed in Roseland Ballroom for a good chunk of period of time. Yeah. But I'm sure most of the trouble was probably with security and blocking areas off more than oh, anything. a thousand percent. Especially when oh. it's just New York and then a studio. Like, that's the entire film. So, like, yeah. they, um, you know, you you have to get the shots. And it also had to do with weather. Because also it can rain. I mean, uh, one of my last years in New York, uh, it rained from March to June every day. Like, (laughs) there was no sun, and I never understood, like, seasonal depression until that year. Oh, baby. (laughs) Oh, no, you're good. I mean, as someone with depression, you know, (laughs) someone with mental illness. But, you know, it's one of the... Welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. I feel like like Disney and people coping with adult mental illness go hand in hand, so... um, Oh, it's sad because it's true. It's sad because it's true, but here we are. But there's so... There's just so many delightful and important things about this film because ultimately it became the most genuine and lovely love letter to a lineage, to a company, to one person. Yeah. Um, but also to this one, it's not even, it's not about Walt. This movie I love because it's not about Walt. It's about every person that worked at Disney before. So you have a couple of the original princess voice actors are in this film. In oh my God, can we talk scene. about that? We can, we can. Oh my gosh. Okay. First of all, Jody Benson. Jody as Benson Sam. as Sam. Uh, Patrick Dempsey's um, Secretary. Assistant. Yep. 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 Yes. Yep. Um, and that moment when Giselle eats the fish out of the tank and she looks so completely horrified. And I'm pretty sure the Muzak in the background is part of your world. It is. Oh, it absolutely um, is. There's also Paige O'Hara, uh-huh. um, who's in the crappy little soap opera in the motel room. And then you have Ju- hysterical. And you have Judy you have Judy Kuhn in the apartment building with all the kids. Yes! Uh, you're too late. <laughs> you're too late. Um, oh my god. And well, I and mean, then um one of the reporters, I think her name was uh Adri- Adriana Ca- Casalotti. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think they did that. I'm trying to think what the other reference Well, those in please, that's three original Disney princesses yeah, in your movie. Absolutely. Right there. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, but then I believe it's the voice of Sleeping Beauty and the voice of Alice are in How Do You Know? I didn't know They're that. two of the older women. And a, a fun oh. chunk that you can't, it's not easy to find, but the older couples that dance together, those are original dancers from the West Side Story film. Yes, because I do know Harvey Evans. I mean, not personally, yeah, but Harvey yeah, yeah. Evans also was um, was in Jim Chimmery. Yes, yes. Um, or Step in Time. Step in Time. Step in time. Yeah. And so um, it's, it's all yes. those. Oh. Well, and then it's so smartly crafted that they, um, because it's an ultimate love letter film, we get those moments of like Giselle reflected in the bubble when she's cleaning mm-hmm. and um, the way that they film the hand dropping the apple. It's the same. There are, I think, I think Lima said himself, there are about 1,200 um easter eggs in this movie i'd believe that and i think one of my favorites that i see it's in the animation in the opening animation um there's actually a bit where edward picks up nathaniel and spins him around Mm -hmm. and it's exactly like prince philip carrying his father around before he goes off to find aurora i'm not sure they could actually rotoscope that because all right this is my one gripe with the film are you ready for yes, it? Yes, yes, let's throw it down. Oh, it kills me. Um, Disney did not provide their own animation for this film because they had already dismantled their hand-drawn animation department. They did, but... Well, but! But, but, but. <laughs> but uh, James Baxter, 
has a freelance studio mm-hmm. and they did send out the work for him and Andreas Deja to do the first 14 minutes of animation. So in that way, you do have the animators from the Disney Renaissance still yes. working on it. But oh my God, Maddie, it, it breaks my heart it, when I talk about the animation studio getting dismantled. It does. It and me. Well, and it's, it's a transition moment of this is, this and I believe the Half a Lump movie are the last Disney movies with hand-drawn animation. Um, yeah. It's, oh my God. I mean, it's, it's hard. For, I mean, I'm sad because... A lot of the movies I've been doing for this first season of the podcast are all Disney Renaissance films mm-hmm. where we're starting to combine digital and hand-drawn. Um, I mean, with Little Mermaid, we lost after that. There is no hand-painted cells. Um, but then you see right. Beauty and the Beast, and it's hard to it's hard to be sad because, yes, while it was a beautiful art form, the expansiveness you can get with the assistance of digital Um that ballroom would not have been the same. No, well, and it. then and then just from watching this year's Disney films, like the idea of, um, yeah, I might reference Frozen two a few times because I've seen it. But there are moments, <laughs> there are moments that it is so, it, the digital composite is so good that it looks real. It looks mm. like it looks like they actually went to Norway to film. And so it's one of those that while it is sad, and I love that this is that final moment in the the true combination of animation and live action. Um, it need, It's one of those things that, like, it's sad, but I think we can acknowledge that it needed to keep going just because of the expense. But what's nice is you have Netflix and um, Hulu who are now delving back into hand-drawn animation for Which their, is a really cool way it is for them really to cool. the Renaissance back. I agree. I agree. I agree because Disney is now its monolith in a way that it never was before. Like they've always been important, but they are a literal mogul now where mm-hmm. there is space for other people to come up and do. I mean, because I can't tell you how many millions of animators or artists there are that were inspired by Disney. Like I'm sure all of you that are listening could tune in that you do something in your life because of Disney. Um, so oh, it's, sure. it's the, yeah. the legacy is there and it's beautiful, but it is, it is sad in, in a way, but it was really nice that they were able to give that work to Disney animators in a way that like Jeffrey Katzenberg just wouldn't have done if, if he was still it's running. True. Um, so that's, that's a great Ugh. moment. Um, but there's just, they're so good. I, I'll get to, I have a couple little things now that I'm watching it as like, a professional storyteller essentially as a theater artist there are a couple little things later on that we can we can talk about um but there are just so many really beautiful and like susan sarandon makes a beautiful disney villain oh my god can we talk please why are there not more narissa drag queens okay so that's that's something that i wanted to talk about is there is almost no existence there's no existence of (laughs) enchanted across disney properties uh, oh every, my God, anywhere. At all. We we never see it. I love when I see a Giselle cosplayer at a convention. It gets I get so excited. But it's only ever at the convention. But it's, it's only at the conventions. On it's never on property. And I get that she's not one of the official princesses because technically she got something else in the end. Um but you know, it's one of those things that I mean Adina Menzel has done very well for herself with Disney though. She, yeah, she has. <laughs> um, she's fine. But, she's but doing just y- fine. You know, it's one of it's one of those things that this movie was so important and meanwhile did over 300 million in box office 
It did yeah, really it did well. Real well. Um, but it also it's of the time where this kind of parody satire film was dominating, and this was a really nice response to Shrek because Shrek had you oh, know, most agree. of Shrek had happened. And what was funny is to know that Tangled was originally supposed to be a response to Shrek and be a complete parody film. To know that we got this beforehand. I think in a lot of ways that was a blessing, though, because I, I think agree. one of the beautiful things about Tangled is it takes the modern elements that Giselle brings into the to the pantheon of Disney mm-hmm. and really makes the woman not only a hero, but a superhero. I mean, Absolutely. You have, uh, as far as Punzi goes, her hair is literal magic. That's yeah. like right up there with Marvel. Yeah. Um, and that's absolutely something we had not seen before. Mm-hmm. Magic was only for, you know, your sidekicks mm-hmm. or your villains mm-hmm. to have mm-hmm. a female princess mm-hmm. with magical powers i'm not sure we would have had that aspect of it before yeah enchanted i really yeah. don't think we would have no um and then i think enchanted also um i, I know this about tangled i because I, I remember reading this when they did um one of the very very first issues of d23 the magazine mm-hmm. that you used to get they had some concept art of tangled where um I think Dan Fogler and Kristen Chenoweth were attached to it. And yes. They yes. were originally like a bratty college student and a pizza delivery boy. Yes. And then they get transformed into the Rapunzel story. Yep. Am yep. I right there? Maddie? Yeah. 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 So they are a couple in San Francisco who are like grungy and weird and they get pulled through a portal and they become Flynn Rider and Rapunzel on the other oh side. And they're switched with Rapunzel and Flynn because of a witch's curse. Um, mm, so okay. now we, it, we, I haven't done a tangled episode yet, but it'll come. It'll come. I'm get, it, Oh, it'll come. I'm given, I'm given some time. I think enchanted. You are officially my most recent movie that we've done. Oh. So, um, but I mean, recent is in 2007, that's 13 years ago, (laughs) which, you know, you know what, if they ever make the sequel, which I know they've been in talks about, um, and I know the, the working title is disenchanted, Mm -hmm. but you realize if they ever make a sequel, it would probably be like Morgan going to college. Yeah. If they actually would hire the original actress, I don't even know if she still acts anymore. She but. she has a current IMDb page, so. Oh, good. No, I'm glad to hear that because she was super cute. Yeah. And you know what? She was cute in a way that wasn't annoying. Yeah. She wasn't like a picture perfect little Disney Channel original yep. movie yep. polished kid. I really appreciated that about her. I felt like they really, with Morgan, gave an authentic look at kind of a real girl yeah honestly and i i definitely appreciated that and i loved that um she had like a ruth bader ginsburg book yes yes (laughs) before it was yes yeah yeah it's not that she was thrilled about it but the fact that she had it and she was like in her little karate outfit at the beginning um and actually one thing that i appreciated about about enchanted in general is how robert and morgan treated giselle when they first meet her it's almost realistic in that he's like, you're just going to stay here for like five minutes until I can get a phone call and get you taken away. And then he just realizes that she's too cute and sleepy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, meh. But then he does what a good dad does. And he goes to his daughter and he says, Morgan, you're sleeping in my room tonight. Yeah. Locking the door. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah, yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry, Maddie. One second. No, you're I good. I just lost you. Did you lose me? 
Nope, we're good. Okay. Sorry. I got so excited You're that good. I pulled my headphone cord. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Sorry, I mean, in this cat, <laughs> this cast is really so wonderful that like you could, I guarantee all of, well, I mean, they're all tied to it. They've all agreed to come back. They've all talked about it. Amy Adams has done interviews. Um, but yeah, it is, it is arguably one of the slowest coming sequels. I think that I have, I think I've seen in a long time. Yeah. Um, and there's also a part of me, part of me, I don't mean to be catty and I would certainly respect it, but there's also a part of me that's like, I wonder if it's because they are having difficulties with affording Amy Adams at her current price versus mm -hmm. her original price. And you know what? I think that's good. I think if that is the case, that mm -hmm. Amy should fight for that payment. Because we also have to keep in mind, Amy Adams, when she did this movie, um, first of all, she was 33, which... Mm -hmm. As far as Disney princesses go, that's the oldest. Yes. And that's sad, but that's the oldest. Um, but this was also her first mainstream mm -hmm. big break. Mm -hmm. I mean, she did do Drop Dead Gorgeous. Um, she uh, was which I love. on The Office. Oh, my God. Like, if you ever do a Drop Dead Gorgeous podcast, we need to talk. Oh, my um, God. I could talk episodes upon episodes about that. I love it. Um, and she also did The Office. And I, I, God, I didn't double check this. I don't know if she filmed Junebug before or after this, but the Oscar buzz, I believe, was after Frozen. Frozen. Listen to me, Maddie. It's enchanting. I'm sorry. It's my fault. Oh, <laughs> um, but I wonder, I wonder if now that Amy Adams is such a big A-lister, um, if maybe she's doing some deeper negotiations, and now she's also an executive producer. Yep. I wonder if maybe she'll also be executive producing disenchanted Maybe. i don't know i have my theories it, i, have I my mean it, it could also be that like she's busy she's a wonderful actress so like yeah it could also be between her and i guarantee disney wanted to get frozen 2 out before they worked on this necessarily um oh, so they could get the idina buzz yeah right on. yep 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 probably yep. yeah yeah uh, um apparently she's the only one that's tied to it right now everyone else is rumored but um uh but we'll 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 see i would love to see disenchanted honestly um disney's been doing pretty okay with the sequels recently so shockingly so, so like right? i really liked poppins returns which i know a lot of people are polarized on i did i did really like poppins returns oh, it was fine. um and then um, frozen 2 was yeah. lovely so you know it's one of those things that i think we're at a point where if they take some careful time with it um mm -hmm. but oh something we didn't even touch on is that having julie andrews as the narrator um yes. was oh my gosh was such a lovely Flawless. moment. Well, in Flawless moment. opening up and the opening the, of the book, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with the book, which goes all the way back to Snow White. So, oh yeah, oh yeah. What was? What are the books? It's Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, um, Winnie the Pooh. Mm -hmm. Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. Yeah, but but yes, the the book opening and closing. That was such a delightful moment, and that it zoomed in through the castle at the opening. Yeah card oh god yeah that's well, great I, th I think something that makes this movie work in so many ways is the cognizance of 
the legacy and but also a deep appreciation for every choice that goes into these movies and how they honored each of those choices again by finding those moments that work because disney you know disney's always reused things that's the thing about disney is that they have something that works they reuse it i mean they're notorious for literally reusing animation that has been thrown out before oh i mean speaking of beauty and the beast and sleeping beauty the the final ballroom scene with um mm-hmm, non-canically mm-hmm. adam and Bell, that is rotoscoped yep. from Beauty and the Beast. Well, I mean, from uh, Sleeping yeah. Beauty, excuse well, me. Well, and then you have most of Robin Hood was rotoscoped. Like that movie. Oh, was that's right. Cobbled Nate together. Marianne yeah. Is basically, Snow White with, and, well, with fox ears. And the chicken, the the chicken, the nurse. She's literally pulled from a. The there was a scrapped, essentially like um not Splash Mountain, but like of another further like animal movie that then got turned into Robin Hood because they had so much animation done. So, you know, just these moments of, but like, is that necessarily a bad thing? I, I'm not sure. No, I call it recycling. Recycle. You know? Honor those people that put a lot of work into it because I don't think people realize how many movies that Disney's like halfway made that then they scrap. Like the ni- the 90s are Full of movies that got half made. There's a terrifying version of Toy Story out there before they let Pixar make it that is just disastrous. <laughs> actually, actually, a little a little pitch. Yesterworld um, on YouTube has done an amazing overarching series of um, these uh, um, like mo- lost movies. The lost movies or like The Emperor's New Groove was a completely different movie to begin with. Beauty and the Beast was a completely different movie. The Fro- well, and Aladdin. Well, too, Aladdin. Well, and that Frozen, the first version of Frozen was technically going to be in 1938. So like all of these things or there was a lot of digital animation that almost is done that's just sitting in archives because they just didn't mm-hmm. finish it. But that's to me that's such a uniquely Disney thing because I feel like they wait and then pull it out and then the story will be great 20 years from when it was originally supposed to be made right um so as is the case with enchanted yes 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 i mean i think every every, i think almost every film that i've covered so far except maybe hercules and tarzan all started decades before they actually hit the screen um but even tarzan and hercules started almost 10 years before we got the actual movie so i mean you know it's just that's that's just how how things work. I had a professor that once said there have been five original ideas. Everything else is a variation. When you look at cinema, it's, it's not too far off. It's just how you tell the story. Absolutely. Well, and you can even go back to um, Joseph Campbell with every, every creation myth comes from the exact same archetype. Yes. At, at the end of the day, we're all just storytelling and what we connect with the most are the stories that are the most primal. And um, absolutely. And, that's absolutely something Disney's been tapped into, which is the main reason that they went into fairy tales in the first place. Yes. These are stories that we love, know, and grow up with. Well, and there's so so many different versions of them. So there is a way to, you know, Mm -hmm. take them apart and put them back together again and tell them for the next, next generation. Um, so there's a little game I always like to play as much as we, as much as we love a movie, it's not always perfect. Now I know you, you brought up, you brought up the one thing of you wished it could have been animated in house, but is there anything script wise that you would have liked to see done a little differently? There's one moment when I was rewatching it that I went like, Oh girl, no. Um, and I have to, it's when Giselle touches 
Robert's client's hair. Yes. At the, <laughs> at the yeah. law office. And I'm like, girl, do not touch a black woman's hair. It, it doesn't matter how pretty or different you think it is. But it also kind of made me, um, it made me realize, I don't know if Giselle had ever seen an African-American or black person before. Exactly. And, um, and I kind of got what they were going with that. And maybe it worked better back in 2007. I don't really remember, but let me tell you, watching it now, um, I, cringed I was a little. like, oh no, yeah. I was just like, oh, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's absolutely no secret. Disney has, um, actually I, I hate plugging somebody else here. No, but, um, plug them, plug them, plug them. Um, I was watching, um, I think I told you this when we were, when we were planning, um, I was watching Lindsay mm-hmm. Ellis's um, critique woke Disney, mm-hmm. which is a must see mm-hmm. for anyone, whether you mm-hmm. love Disney or hate Disney. Mm-hmm. It's such a compelling uh, video essay, but uh, she brings up an excellent point that Disney is really quick to fix quote unquote uh, problems that they've had with their product in regards to gender, but their response to their racist past, and I think we can call it racist. Yes, we can, past, and we should. Has been, and we should, has been specifically to ignore it. Yeah. Which is not a healthy way to deal with it. And no. um, not that Frozen, again with Frozen, not that Enchanted, you're going to have to edit all of these out. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> not that Enchanted is like the most glaringly racist film in the entire canon of Disney. But when I look back at it, every single lead is white. Mm-hmm. And that is interesting. And uh, and it's a little sad to me that the most diverse of the leads is Idina Menzel. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking as, as a Jewish woman myself, like, yes, there's a part of me that's like, yay, Disney officially has a canon uh, Jewish Disney princess. But... Really? That's the best we can do? Right. Um, not that I want Disney to uh, ever make, like, the story of Esther, because um, there's no. Just no way that no. would be good. <laughs> um, but, but, yeah, I think just in general, I, I do wish the film had more diversity in its cast, mm-hmm. and that the one moment that we actually have with African-American people, or frankly... Um, it's not the one moment because Adriana Casalotti, uh, the reporter, is also African American. But uh, yeah, more diversity, and not just lip service, and yeah. uh, and also the bus driver mm-hmm. um, as well. Like, okay, so we can touch hair, we can be sassy, um, but we can't be a lead in a movie. Right. I don't know. That's right. that's the one thing for me. Right. Well, no, and I yes. I agree, and that's what I talk about a lot on the podcast. Is like they're. They're making the tiniest of tiny pushes forward. After we've, we're recording this within the weeks after Disney Plus has premiered. And mm-hmm. so they finally opted not to cut questionable material now and owning up to it and doing like the Warner Brothers placard ahead of time. Which, which that I think is the is, best way to go about you, it. And I applaud Warner Brothers for that, you, that you, they own up to Yeah, it. you can't hide from it. And it's the only way to really move on. I mean, Whoopi Goldberg bought it up brought it up when she became a Disney legend. I I feel like I talk about this constantly that she's like, if you're going to have people like me as Disney legends, you have to own up to your legacy of racism and, and that it is institutional and systemic. Um, 
And that's why so many people don't see it as an issue where they just go, oh, it's a different time. And I'm, I'm of the camp of, yes, it was a different time, but it never made it right. Just, you know, it's, it's, there was a different mindset about power and, and place. And it does not mean that those kinds of things were correct. And Um, representation matters. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it is a little sad with Princess and the Frog that Disney's first black princess spends the majority of the movie as an amphibian. Yeah. And you and know. and they make sure she's like solidly poor working class. Um mm-hmm. if if anybody if anybody hasn't heard our Christmas episode from um um, Muppet Christmas Carol, our guest Bryn Williams, who was on Broadway in SpongeBob in 13, um, had a lot to say, actually, as, as a woman of color when she watched Princess and the Frog and her standpoint is on uh, Princess and the Frog. So I encourage everybody to go back and listen to that episode if you have not yet. Um, there were, I think for me, the most glaring thing in this movie is Nancy gets the worst, like, rap ever. Like, she... <laughs> The poor woman just, well, one, she had, well, one, Adina had like three scenes cut from the movie where we give a shit about her, um, and, and, um, and in her business and, um, you know, everything that, that's supposed to happen with her, but she just, and she just so willingly, kind of goes with it. She's a patient woman. She She's is. such a patient woman. Well, My fiance won't even let me take his daughter to school and suddenly there's a strawberry blonde naked in the shower and I'm just supposed to go, okay. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and at this point, and at this point, Adina for a lot of people, they saw her as beautiful, but like in a non-traditional way. And I yeah. think she's really traditionally very beautiful. She has such striking features. I think she's gorgeous. Oh, I um, think Adina's gorgeous. I know people, like like many things, uh, people are polarized towards Idina, both mm-hmm. talent and professionally. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm Team Idina. Yeah, I really I, am. I, I think. But I, you know, at this point, to think that like that, you know, we're still pitting women against women, and that like when she just goes mm. kiss kiss her, Robert, kiss her, and you're just like, oh, and Idina does a really beautiful job of like you just get to see the like heaviness in Nancy's eyes that like she loves him so much, but just to know that you have no no chance and she ends up with the like insanely hot but insanely stupid prince <laughs> can know. we also talk about the real mvp of this movie oh it's this james, james marston's <laughs> finest work hands and, down oh my god first of all that he was never a professional singer and just naturally uh, has like a baritone or operetta voice uh, part one um, and part two, I watched B-roll of this when I was prepping for this interview. Um, he actually stood on top of that bus with no wiring in Times Square to do that scene. And also, it was him who got hit from behind by yeah. the bikers just onto like a gymnastics mat in the middle of Central Park. Well, let's be That a- man did everything. <laughs> he for did. Movie. Well, let's be honest. He'd done the X Men film, so he had nothing left to lose. So. Totally- <laughs> <laughs> well, and unfortunately for him, in the X Men films, and this is something that I think most film actors will tell you. Um, the problem with James Marsden in the X-Men films is unless you know he's there, you don't because his eyes are covered the whole time. Yep. It's kind of like with RoboCop. Yep. Um, 
you know, everyone knows the character. Not many people know the actor. Right. Unfortunately, I don't have IMDb in front of me exactly. to be able to tell you that actor's name. Yeah. And that's a terrible, sad thing. But if your eyes are covered as an actor in film, you do not get remembered. Mm-hmm. You just don't. Well, and, and maybe I'll do a little a, a little episode on those because they technically are Disney now because Disney owns Fox. So ten, ten, maybe, maybe I'll do a, a sweeping through of the X-Men trilogy. because. Oh, but it's, you know what I it is? Know. You know what it is? It's he, they just didn't write Cyclops in a really dynamic way for him. And he's a wonderful no. actor. He's, he's a, a wonderful actor. actor. Like, I, I wish he would come do Broadway. Like, I wish. I do too. He would just come really on over. Too. Buddy, James, James, if you're listening, come do Broadway. Jimmy boy, come, come join to, us. Come, come do the Broadway. I have like a thousand things I put you in. Just come do Broadway. Seriously. You can do more than the Taco Bell commercial. You come, come this way. I love those Taco Bell commercials. (laughs) So funny. I got to tell you, when I first saw it, I thought it was another Transformer commercial. (laughs) Oh, yeah, honestly. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm not mad. I love those nacho fries. But honestly, as far as this movie goes, I think all of their steps were in the right place. I just think, I think he should have just maybe been a grieving widower and like... Trying I'm to going to disagree his... with you. And oh, I'll tell okay. You why. Yeah, throw it I'm out. Throw it out. Because this was a part of the movie that I appreciated. I am so glad Morgan did not have a dead mom. Oh, yeah. So glad. Part one. And that Robert's grief over his wife leaving. And that's why he was a divorce lawyer. Mm-hmm. I actually thought that was brilliant. But also, Disney has such a legacy with the dead mom syndrome. And we can talk about how this goes back to Walt feeling guilty about the house that he built for his mother. Mm-hmm. And she died of um, gas poisoning. Mm-hmm. And that it stems all the way from back there. But no, it was fi- for me, I was finally like something that was real. And, and I tell you what, it was also the moment in in the Italian restaurant when he's explaining it to Giselle Mm -hmm. that it is something that's so out of her realm and she's still able Mm -hmm. to give him this sympathetic and honest without being cloying response to his grief and sadness. No, I'm, I'm sorry, Maddie completely disagree. If it was another dead mom, I would have been like, Oh, that's one cliche too many. Right. right. Well then, then, well then if it had been that leave the story of her, I don't know why I always forget that she leaves and not that she's died. I literally was washing dishes today when I was watching it and went, Oh yeah, she died as they're saying that she just left. So like, um, you know what it is? I think it's, I think it's that psycho social programming that it is a Disney movie. So, you just expect a dead parent um or is it your your social programming that no only men leave right that too. and women are the nurturers that too that as well um you know? but I, I i feel like um i feel like there could be just something a little better for nancy uh, but i don't actually know how to do that in in the way either. that this this script is laid out i feel like if if he's not just a single dad, there is going to be some, uh, some you know, there's going to be a casualty of emotion, and that's got to be Nancy. And she, you know, she does end up with Prince Edward, and he is painfully attractive. Oh um, God, it would hurt my eyes every day. To and look at him and she and she, and she was animated <laughs> so beautifully, like she really because um, they did. And they, I loved that she did the dip. Kiss I did too. I did. So cute. I did well, and they so did, they did a really good job of doing the animation so that um, 
they all looked just like their character, you know, the actor, the costume, the the costume designer worked with the animators for a year to make sure that all the clothing and the textiles looked right. Um, Mm -hmm. And that Edwards costume specifically. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. And they, they talked about just construction, uh, the construction aspects of it so that his sleeves never deflated. Um, (laughs) and, and well, and they said they patted him, his chest, his arms, his ass, his thighs, his crotch and his Mm. chest, um, his back and his arms so that he had Disney Prince proportions, not that he was out of proportion, but just so that he was literally as proportioned as every other drawn Disney man has been before. Um, we also have to think about this during how does she know? James Marsden is wearing that mm-hmm. in June uh-huh. in Central Park. Uh-huh. And velvet, Dying. like in that velvet, velvet. costume. Yeah, like I just, <laughs> you know what though? That, oh, that, oh, oh, oh that, mad, that face, it's granted. I don't mind. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and then for me, the other really standout thing about this film that's not really a problem, but I just love it's the reuniting of Stephen Schwartz and Alan Menken. For Thank you. Oh it's, my god, yes. Well, and the yes, fa- yes, yes, well, yes, and the yes. fact that Alan Menken also scored the entire film himself. Yes, Normally that it he, wasn't that it wasn't like Alan Silvestri yep. coming in and doing it last minute. And it was yeah. I think it was really important because you've got so many chord progressions and so many mm-hmm. things that were so reminiscent of I mean, Alan Menken has arguably written the most iconic Disney scores for his entire career other Correct. other than maybe Lion King and Tarzan he's written yeah. generally everything else he or Steven but Steven but Steven worked I'm, with I'm not, him I don't want to say I don't want to say that Tarzan and the Lion King were one hit wonders but cuz no. cuz that's a gross overgeneralization but those were one and done jobs right. Alan Menken has he been kept with coming Disney. back yes for a very long period though, of time, and uh, continues to do so. And, and though they didn't really talk about it, but they said it did take some convincing to get Alan back during this process uh, to turn it into a musical. And then he brought Steven. Um, mm-hmm. No, I agree, because also, like, yeah, we had Tim Rice and, and uh, Elton John, but then they went on to do Aida for Disney Theatrics right. in 2001, which was a huge deal. Um, and Phil Collins did Brother Bear, which was not nearly as popular um, by any stretch of the imagination for Disney. And unfortunately, but, I think Brother Bear is our last Rick Moranis film yes, ever. Yes, I believe so. I think so. Let me look that up because I, I know so. I know there's been for the sure. rumors that he's coming, um, that he's coming back out of, of retirement or um, those kinds of things. Well, he did. Maddie, did you know that he came when Bam in Brooklyn played Little Shop of Horrors? Yes. He did the Q and A talk yes. at the end. Yes, yes, yes. Speaking of Alan Menken, right? But yeah. um, oh my God, that was a huge hit. I'm I'm still kicking myself, but I think it was it was such a great secret that even like my friends in the know didn't know about it. Yeah. He showed up and they're like, "We have to do this. We have to do this." And I'm like, "Ah." So. Yeah. No, he um. The last thing he did, yeah, for that wasn't like a, a role that he'd already done before that he was doing a, a documentary or something for was Brother Bear mm-hmm. Two. Um, okay. Yeah, because he did brother he did Brother Bear in two thousand three, and then he did Brother Bear Two in two thousand six. Um, but he was just on the Goldbergs 
Um, was he really? Yeah, he played. Oh, he God. played. He played Dark Helmet. His his baseballs character. Oh my! Oh, now I'm embarrassed. I didn't know that. Okay, that's that's yeah, happening. It's, as it's soon so as funny. I'm done yes, to you. yes, 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 absolutely. Oh, yes. But he's someone that I would love. I would love to see come back out. And I know he was doing the dad thing and raising his family, which I think is beautiful, um, in in many, many, many ways. Um, yeah. But this this movie, it's so. I will say, it's it's such an anomaly because it represents everything that Disney was. But then honestly, like we've said, it represented the future of what would Disney would become as well. It laid the foundation. It truly. did. I, it was I, kind of the bridge in between the two, between yeah. the Renaissance and, um, is there an official name for what we're calling the newer Disney movies now? Um, uh, no, let me look that up. I should know. Because um, I definitely consider the Renaissance to, well, personally, I consider the Renaissance to start with Great Mouse Detective and Roger Rabbit, but most people consider it to start with The Little Mermaid. It is the technically The Little Mermaid Um uh, because of the great mass detective and Oliver and company pulled, um, uh, pulled us out of okay. the, uh, they were, they were pulling us out of the Disney, uh, Disney dark age. Um, but then, um, yes. Yeah, so there's the post Renaissance and we're in the revival era now. There we go. So I think this is, the bridge in between the Renaissance and the revival. It I is. Really do. It is. This, this definitely kicked off the um, post Renaissance because that went until about 2009. Um, and so I, in this being in 2007 set a tone for the next two movies that would, um, which would be princess and the frog and um, tangled that I think yeah. it, it's set up for, for that success uh, to happen, but we are about to transition um uh in the out of the revival era i think which i think we might have to call the post frozen era because the way that disney is well the the way that disney is creating media now is completely different um and it's it's just so unusual i'm not sure what we're going to really i don't know what we're going to call the next the next kind of 10 years of disney you know what disney is material what is going to look like what it, what is this new post apocalyptic where i mean i say apocalyptic yeah. cuz i'm a pessimist but um but with all this conglomerate control mm -hmm. like will we finally have like the real epcot the way that walt envisioned it will disney actually just finally take over a city and it won't be a it won't be like celebration mm -hmm. which as someone who grew up in that area celebration's not doing so great yeah sorry not sorry yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah. well but, i am sorry because it affects real people right. but um yeah it's that but i'm not sorry with the poor planning yeah nobody actually talked to anyone in real city development no so. Yeah, Whose and it's fault was that cost of living in Orlando. I mean, cost of living everywhere, but between Anaheim and Orlando, the cost of living is so exponentially higher because yeah. of Disney and Universal that it is. It is. It's. It's one of those things of I can enjoy this thing, but I think we always continually need to call out what's happening and Absolutely. acknowledge that it is affecting very real people. Um, I mean, because we have. I mean, Disney World alone employs sixty-five thousand to seventy thousand people at any given time and that's just the parks and resorts that's not cruise line that's not right. just ticketing centers that's not including the 14 disney stores we have in you know florida state like it's it's because <laughs> it's, it's true and you know what maddie it's interesting that you bring up like how it affects real people um i'm sure your listeners are familiar with waking sleeping beauty i um, hope so they all should go uh, watch it if they haven't you should because it's a documentary about how 
the dis- the dissolvement of the animation studio affected the animators. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can only speak from personal experience. I had a really good friend of mine in high school whose family had to leave the country mm-hmm. because his father was an animator for Lilo and Stitch and Mulan. And when it when the animation studio closed at MGM, I will call it MGM. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's going to be MGM for the rest of my life. Um, but when the animation studio closed at MGM, his family was out of a job and yeah. his dad could only get it. Well, I, I don't know the full economics as mm-hmm. I was a teenager at the time, but the job that his father ended up getting afterwards was a video game development company in Canada. So mm-hmm. my friend's entire family had to leave the country because Disney let all of their animators go. So these yeah. these things do have real world effects yep. and you know you and i have both worked at the disney theme park mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i know anaheim is going through a lot of um issues right now with union labor laws and then of course there were the big tax breaks from our president mm-hmm. currently that has not been kind to um the little people but has been very kind to corporations mm-hmm. um and all of this directly affects the everyday individual who lives and works there as a job yep yeah. So it's just something to be aware of. It, yeah, but it, yes. Yeah, it's it's as we're consuming this, I think we need to remember that there are so many faceless people that we will never ever get to see whose life are positively and negatively affected by by what's happening or, you know, it's it's one of those things that I I think we can there's no real ethical consumption anymore. And I think right. when we consume media, it's the same way that we have to acknowledge that there are a lot of things that have gone very wrong um, in the uh, in order for these companies to make the money that they are because it's the company making the money, not the people that are working for them. Right. But it's still it can still represent hope and magic for so many people. And it's a really mm-hmm. difficult place to be in to know that like I went I was at Epcot yesterday actually. Um and they have Aww. the they have the D twenty three um the uh D twenty three Epcot ex, uh, exhibit there right now, which includes the giant model and the projection screens and I it was the first time I'm seeing it and I openly wept because I thought it was just beautiful and what the Imagineers are doing are just absolutely stunning. And so I, it's one of those things that they're doing the most magical things, but at the same time it's being looked at as a consumable commodity that has to have a bottom dollar. And what I take away from it in like art and soul and spirit the people who are making the money don't necessarily care about that heart, that soul, or that spirit, which is gut-wrenching to me in many ways. Um, but, but also knowing that, like, there are good things coming out of it, and there are people whose entire lives... I have friends who are working in Imagineering now, and friends that, you know, have a lifetime career at Disney that never want to leave mm-hmm. because they are being treated well. And I was very lucky during my time there that... What I wasn't making in money, the experience was just so wonderful. And I had the most incredible leadership um, at, at Disney that, like, as I graduated from graduate school now, I was like, yeah, I would totally go back. Um, and I then- will say working at Disney for myself has has been the basis of every non-acting job I've ever had as yeah. far as my training has yeah. gone, my professionalism has gone, being a cast member absolutely um 
puts an imprint on your heart in a way I don't think any other job does, even at Universal, honestly. Yeah. It's just really special. Not that there aren't fallbacks and consequences mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to it, mm-hmm. but I, I can also look back and say I wouldn't have traded that time for anything. That yeah. was absolutely well, one of the biggest learning curves of my yeah. childhood was working there. Well, and so many companies send people in to literally learn the training methods and the operating way, and then they literally take it back to their park. Cedar Park is on it. Um, mm-hmm. um, as so many of the other parks, there are companies that have nothing to do with entertainment and amusement that that use the Disney training methods. I mean, those four keys, those four keys will stick with you no matter how long, you know. I, I, it's, <sighs> I still have my little laminated placard of the seven guest service guidelines yes um, it's it's buried way too deep but it stays in my wallet i yeah. have to tell you and it's got the seven dwarves attached to all of the nice. seven guest it. service guidelines it's adorable yeah. i actually pr- i printed it out for a job recently and i put it up on the cork board and everyone was like what is this and i was like let me tell you the tale of traditions yeah oh traditions <laughs> traditions 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 uh, but let's listen you can't tell me that when mickey walked in and gave me my name tag at the end of traditions that it wasn't the most magical thing and no job will ever live up to that you would be wrong and we cried and we, we cried. cried i cried and i love my little they give you free cheap little mickey ears and yep. i it was the best day and then i then took my little blue id and i went to the magic kingdom and cried some more because let me tell yep. you it's worth it um it is and i worked at, now i never did character work unfortunately mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know that's mm-hmm, one of those mm-hmm. it just didn't happen it's fine um but i did work at a restaurant and what other restaurant in the world could i take my breaks at the country bear jamboree oh oh literally were, were nowhere you, else were you at pegos bill i was at pegos, you were at pegos bill. bill well i was like it, it's either the golden horseshoe or pegos bill i have many no, friends that pegos. pegos bill absolutely um, oh, it was pegos. pegos bill oh, oh maddie i the worst i will say this this is the one memory of disney and, and this is no one's fault this is just life but um my birthday is july 4th and uh, I had to work on my birthday. Of course. At Pecos Bill, uh, which is in Orlando, Florida, on July 4th. It was 100 degrees, 100% humidity, and we ran out of French fries at 2 p.m., an hour before uh, the 3 o'clock parade. Well, and you had that taco <laughs> bar from hell. Yeah, it's the just, dipping station, uh, the filling station. Uh, Excuse me. They uh, might have changed it from now, but uh, uh, probably. But it's it's it lives on in spirit. And for most people that don't know, <laughs> Disney, most Disney locations have what's called an open door policy, which mm-hmm. means if there's doors, they have to be open and welcoming, which is beautiful and lovely. Except when it's a hundred degrees out in July and your cast members and are in polyester. That's not an exaggeration. Nope. It is a hundred degrees outside. Yep. I was. I worked at Hollywood Studios uh, on. Sunset Boulevard. You uh, worked at MGM. I did. I were well. It had just become. <laughs> it had just become the studios. Um, but yeah, I know it. it um, yeah, I'm I worked such at MGM. About no, it. you're I'm good. Sorry. You're good. Um, <laughs> there are those. There are those camps. Of, I mean, it will always be MGM in my heart because it was still MGM the first time I went, just before mm-hmm. the change. Um, and I had wonderful leadership, and I was at like Once Upon a Time on Sunset Strip, and the and the villains, the the villain Sweet Spells. Uh, shout out to Sweet Spells, which is now Pixar Shop. I I I was very sad that day, Aww. but um, yeah, no, a lovely, lovely experience. But like, you're not prepared for what July in polyester and wool pants and a button up and a tie. Feel oh, like I had to wear tights at Pecos Bill yep, at the time, with, so with, I get you, honey. With all those doors <laughs> open, and it's but it's still 
at the end of the day, man, there's just something about it that I think this film to get a, <laughs> to get us back a little oh, bit. Come back. No, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. Um, but like this film manifests all of those good, yeah. good things, all of those good fuzzy feelings, and I just, I really, I really love that. Um, now, there's one other thing that I think that didn't make the film that I wished had of. There, they wrote six film. They wrote six songs. Five made it in the film, which is amazing because normally they'll write fourteen, seven make it, something like that. Um, but Adina Menzel and James Marston had a, a song called "Enchanted" that got ah. cut, and I really—it's <laughs> never made a recording. It's never made another release of it because I don't think Enchanted's had another. DVD Blu-ray release since it came out in 2008. No, well, because I think only that original one. Yeah, that's well, the only one I was able to find. I um, because I bought it at the Blockbuster on 50th on a break at Wicked when I was working ah! at the Wicked. Um and uh, <laughs> Wicked boom. Um and uh, uh and yeah, I mean I paid a lot of money for it because the Virgin Mega Store closed and um. Oh, maybe not yet. Maybe not yet. Maybe not yet. The Virgin Megastore, which is now the Disney Store. Which is the Disney Store and that awful Forever 21 that's a nightmare, but I go in every time. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I walked in and and because when I was watching it today, there's an advertisement selling Blu-ray. And so they were pitching Blu-ray to people for the first time. And so I guess they haven't felt a need to re-release this since it had a Blu-ray release, but... It's 12 years ago. I feel like it's time for a, a fun update with some more info, some some like a decade later retrospectives. Because those yeah. are the things I love. Where there, are they now? Something th- like that. There are right? no, yeah, there are no interviews and all of the like behind the scenes are very short. They're like two and a half minutes. Um, and they're mostly introduced by Kevin Lima. Not yes, that I'm mad about it, no. but there aren't that many cast interviews. Right. I had to, I actually, for this research, I had to go and do some digging and find like movie phone yes. and like E. Yeah. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, but it was, mm-hmm. it was difficult to find yeah. on the YouTube anyway. There yep. was more about Amy Adams saying that disenchanted was in the works than right. they were from her right. original interviews. Right. Well, and that's the thing is even as far as like all of the really like amazing Disney um, YouTubers, there's almost nothing on this. There's not a lot of retrospectives. There's not a lot of discussions. No. Um, but cause like even like Sarah Sterling hasn't done a video on this and she's done a video on almost everything. Um, have the super Carlin brothers done one? I yes. They, they I believe they did a short one. I did not have a chance to watch it beforehand, but I'm watching it after so I can write our okay. pre-show. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> um, cause, but that's, what's hard is some of these, for some of these episodes, um, I'm, I'm digging, I'm digging down to find stuff and it's the same six facts like some of these yeah. movies are just really information's hidden or honestly maybe things weren't that sketchy and shady going through so there's not a lot of like drama that's remembered and that's not what I'm looking up I just as a theater person as a dramaturg director designer I I want to know the process of kind of how these yeah. things came about now the, the funny thing with this is I've never seen deeper dramaturgy of a Disney movie than this movie because it's literally dramaturgy of Disney. And it is, it's, I think it's exemplary done in all of the, everybody that worked in that kind of aspect. Cause in film, you don't really call it dramaturgy, but 
you know, everybody, all of the designers and all of the DPs and everybody that set up every shot and thought about every storyboard, they should be commended in such wonderful ways. They really should, because they walked a tightrope. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. a, a tightrope of, again, like, it was a parody, it was a pastiche, but it was also pushing the brand, dare I say, forward. Yes. Um, in a really exciting and fun way. And also just the fact that they did do half animation and mm-hmm. half live mm-hmm. action. I mean, I'm trying to think offhand, did anything before Who Framed Roger Rabbit mm. use that technique? I'm um, not sure. Mary Poppins had the two and Bed Noms and Oh, I'm sorry. I meant before uh I, I think I meant after Roger Rabbit. Oh, I said before, no, but you're right. No, yes, yes this, this is the first this is the first film since Roger Rabbit that Roger Rabbit Rabbit. Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Roger Rabbit that um um uh had the duo animation and live action. Mm-hmm. And even Roger Rabbit wasn't quite the Roger Rabbit was a film noir mm-hmm, set in mm-hmm, in a mm-hmm. world where cartoons and humans interacted, yes. but it wasn't necessarily a critique no. of the studio. No, not at all. Because it really, at the end of the day, isn't a Disney film. No, if anything, I would say it's a Steven Spielberg. Film. It is. Well, and I know it's Robert Zemeckis directing, but yeah. well, it wouldn't happen without. Well, him. that's why that's why Maroon Studios got pulled from MGM. That's why mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit barely exists for Disney because he's not. It's it's it is a fine line of of yeah. those rights holding is and things. Now, something I mentioned, I was just looking up the awards that this won because this was nominated for three Best Song Oscar nominations, which mm-hmm. was so funny and i believe they still did not win that year um i don't I, think they did i no. think it was crazy horse that got the um it was the jeff bridges um right um let's see yeah academy award best original song because kristen chenoweth sang how does she know at the yeah. oscars amy sang working song and then um the actor who the, sang so close so sang close, so close yeah john mclaughlin and I, and I liked the, I like, I remember liking the choreography for So Close that they yep. actually did kind of pretty much yeah, match it up to the film. They did. Um, but I was a little curious, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love me some Kristen, but I was a little curious as to why Amy didn't sing How Does She Know. That could have been a contract um, and that's in money thing. she only sang Happy Working. That could have been a contract Maybe. in work. Well, because I know there's the rumor that Adina was originally supposed to sing Ever, Ever After for the um, credits <sighs> But, I did not know that. But there was a money oh. there was a money issue. Um and again, this is just rumor and conjecture um as as happens, but that <laughs> she wanted an additional pay for the recording of the song and Disney said no, but they ended up hiring yes. Carrie Underwood anyway. So, um but that the music Silly. It is silly. So um, silly. Well, but what was interesting is the the studio also animated the music video because um, it's mm-hmm. it's Carrie in that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it's weird. They they were nominated for three Academy Award, all and for best original none. song. At one none, <laughs> I'm fairly certain. Yeah, that was the Crazy Horse. Um, Which, by the way, Maddie, sing me that song from Crazy Horse that we all know and love um, so well. Hold on, let me. It's I know. No, no, no. no that's the point. Uh, that's the point. <laughs> but also, you have to think about. I guess you have to think about um, mass appeal. I guess. Yeah. Oh no! I will tell you what won that year. Um, what? Falling slowly from once. 
Oh, well, okay. I actually can't sing that song, so yeah. I won't now. Right. But I, well, I, I and, do know it. And, uh, and then it was also Raise It Up from August Rush. Um, so it was a really unusual year, but okay. I, got, I gotta say, I'm not sad fine. that I, I'm uh, <laughs> fine. I'm not sad that they lost because I love once. So um, I was about to say like, mm, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah fine. Mm, yeah. Because honestly, if happy working song had won, I would have been like happy, but confused. Happy and confusing. You know, everybody in the industry would have been like, fuck Disney. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I will say one of the my other things about this movie is the costume design by Mona May, who oh my god Giselle's wedding dress we haven't even talked about it's um, so good in hearing thirty five pounds of engineering magic yep legit yep it is it is incredible it is two hundred yards um, of silk satin I believe they made eleven of these dresses oh altogether yes, I know. I know at least one of them actually had the rig for when the the pigeons yep. spin it around. Yeah. Speaking of happy working song, um, um, and it basically looks like Princess Diana's wedding dress on yes. crack. Yes. Which I yeah. Love. For and her hair was so big and it just everything oh, was it, massive. Well, and it was in animated scale. That's the thing is they thought about the mm-hmm. scale of an animation. Um, it was extremely poofy and had several metal hoops holding up twenty layers of petticoats and ruffles for my for my costume nerds out there um yeah there were 11 versions of the dresses made each made of 200 yards of silk satin other fabrics and weighed approximately 40 pounds um now this is the cosplayers who who put on uh, that one because that is that's like going scarlet o'hara but with even more work well i mean and and for anybody that doesn't know kind of the ins and outs of costumes this is very common the wicked dresses the bubble glinda dresses a 45 pound dress there are 50 there are 50 yards of fabric in the alphabet two dress i believe like so these are things that in theater are not unheard of and uh, but for film but for film yeah yeah and apparently it was really hard for amy to wear this dress because all of the weight is in the hips so she so was literally yeah bearing down i know a, a lot of people have said that the the costumes and the the stunt stuff actually was really grating on the bodies because it was not easy things to wear. Um, And so, but like she did this um, wonderful job. And honestly, the costume design in the Haunted Mansion movie is one of the only things I like about the movie. Uh, (laughs) Call call back to episode one. Go back to episode one. Um, But Mona, Mona. Mona, That is still not my favorite movie. Oh, it will never be my favorite movie ever. (laughs) Um, But Mona May did the costumes for that as well. And I thought it was one of the most beautiful. It was one of the best parts of that movie. you're teaching me stuff. Yeah. Um, And then I think it's. It's funny, a lot of the other things that she did for Disney were all Disney Channel original movies. Um, but she also did Clueless, which is iconic, mm. um, and The Wedding Singer, I which mean, again, sh- iconic. And plaid. Yes. Oh. plaid jumpsuit. Not jumpsuit, but the plaid um, uh, suit, yeah. skirt set. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's the, With old, the yellow. Can we, like, I think it's interesting to think that, like, you have Clueless, which is known for the plaid colors, and then you have Heathers, which is known for the plaid colors. It's something about... Mm-hmm rich white girls in plaid that just get people going. I don't, I don't know. (laughs) It just screams crap. Well, it also, it is, it is, uh, it stands out on stage or on, on film. Um, Mm -hmm. so, but I think she really got this idea of what the scale of an animated costume looks like and how Mm -hmm. we could do these in real life. But also like, 
dressing like most people as a costume designer i just did for my thesis it was six contemporary costumes um but you know in those intro to theater papers that everybody has to write nobody really talked about it which to me means i did my job because the costumes didn't stand out in a way that you went oh or it was a good play because then you didn't go well the tech was good um well and that let's even think about like the transition of Giselle's costumes mm-hmm. in this movie. So yes. That yes. she makes the costumes mm-hmm. out of, uh, and, until the final ball, mm-hmm. but she makes them out of the curtains that she finds at Robert's house. And, mm-hmm. um, and they're very, first you have the one that kind of looks like a muha painting, which is yes. the, the green bathrobe mm-hmm. style mm-hmm. dress. And then she has like the cute little off the shoulder pinafore mm-hmm. dress skirt. But then that she finally like goes out into Manhattan and buys a very classy but absolutely not traditional Disney princess. Yes. Almost mm-hmm. sheath mermaid dress mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the um is it a halter? I'm not sure. Yes, it, that, yeah, the, it's the, the yeah, it's the beaded halter, yeah. Mm, the beaded halter neckline and her hair is straight mm-hmm. for the first time and it's actually kind of I don't want to go so far as to say Jessica Rabbit, but it's definitely the Veronica Lake of mm-hmm, the side mm-hmm, part, mm-hmm, deep mm-hmm, lunge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She is a woman by the time she comes out in that outfit well, and a classy woman. Well, and it's the, it's the only thing that puts a pin into when this movie takes place. It is, mm-hmm. it is with the exception of there's no social media interaction in this film. Right, because um, this was before smartphones, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, Nancy, well, Nancy throws her Blackberry. Like, so she still had the Blackberry <laughs> With the little, with the little, with the little antenna, um, mm-hmm. and so now I don't really think the story would actually change with the the advancements in technology and the internet because they crafted a story where it's not important. Um, right. But I think it that dress and it's beautiful. Um, I don't want to call it timeless, her her ball dress. But um, mm-hmm. it is it is really lovely, and you still see something like that in stores. But it's the that that kind of silhouette and that dress for the ball is the only thing that really gives us a pin to where we put this in time, which right. is such not a Disney thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think they did a really nice job because, like, really, I mean, Adina, they put her in lovely professional clothing that you still find in stores. Men's wear never changes. Right, it's not super trendy. It's no. Very, I, I don't want to go so far as to say it's basic, but it's clean and professional. It's professional and, and clean, and it's New York. It is the epitome of New York in that time. Exactly. Um, of, like, New York adult working professional, which I think is actually really good because otherwise you spend the whole time going, oh, God. Now, as a Broadway fan, I sit there going, oh, God, there's a Lestat poster on the Palace Theater. I know. <laughs> I know. And then so many people are like, oh, look, it's Wicked. It was obviously a nod. To-. And I'm like, no, no, no. That poster's been there since... Uh, since Wicked opened. It's like that, still there. It is still there. Yes, it's <laughs> it still, there. still there. But um, yeah, the Lestat poster. Well, I mean, and then you get the color purple. You see mm-hmm. you see the drowsy chaperone marquee. That's right. When he comes out, of the, when uh, Edward uh-huh. comes out of the manhole, you can see drowsy yeah. chaperone. Yeah, there, right. there are just a couple things. And like uh, something else that I loved that they did 
was they were doing very subtle nods to reaffirming or like restating what we considered beautiful, what we considered worthwhile, because there's that statue that's been in Columbus Circle forever of the the overweight woman who is beautiful. It's it's a really beautiful um, thing, but most of the time people think it looks funny or they poke fun at her because she's heavy. Um, and all these things where they not don't... just heavy, but heavy with small breasts. Heavy with too. small breasts. Yes, she is. You know, a very you know she is a very normal shaped body, mm-hmm. and and for Giselle to be so marvelled by her, or like Tanya Pinkins' character, who is beautiful, and I love that it's Tanya Pinkins. Um, who I do was, too. I forgot to um, mention the woman yeah. she whose hair she touches is mm-hmm. uh, Tanya Pinkins. Broad, Broadway royalty, Tanya, Tanya Pinkins. Yeah, Tanya Pinkins. The only other person that I thought would have been really great for that would have been a her. Hercules nod and to have Lilius White in that role. Oh, that um, would have been good. Or La Chazé. Or, who, yes, um, Was yes. in The Color Purple at the she time. Was, she was, she was, she um, was. And, uh, but, you know, those are, I mean, Tanya Pinkins is iconic. Um, but, you know, it's the, those things that, like, also, they took that very specific moment in the beauty salon to go, not all stepmothers are evil. As a matter of mm-hmm. fact, I've only ever met lovely stepmothers because they're changing their own narrative in a really important way because for so long stepmothers and mother-in-laws always get this really terrible patriarchal misogynistic kind of bad rap um and well, i you know it's the some people say there's a madonna horror complex yes, in culture. yes i would go so far as to say there's actually three there's madonna bitch horror yes now complex. absolutely um, and I think a lot of people, if you don't fit into Madonna or whore, you are classified yes. as bitch. Which is what the, I think stepmother that's the stepmother typically is. Yes, yes, to. yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, also, because they always tend to be a little bit older, they're driven career women technically a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Or they are literally have always just been, you know, the Lady Tremaine. They have been set out to be that villainous archetype. And right. I think, well, and Disney started this thing now where, you know, there is no real villain to a movie. Mm-hmm. We are we are our own worst villains, and kind of what we do to ourselves are those villain things. And I think it's a way that they were trying to restructure. Also, because at the point this was coming out, you know, um, second and third marriages were at like a peak for a lot of people, or that like your long term marriage is your second one, and divorce was at such a high rate in America that it was really important for kids to have that narrative and be told that it's like your family is your family, no matter how your family is made up. And I right. think it's really, really, really important. And they've just been, um, um, they've been doing that more. There's the the show that just got canceled on Disney Channel called Andy Mac, um, I believe is what it's called. Let me look it up. It's been a sure. very yes, 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 yeah. So it's um, it's called Andy Mac, and it's this really great show um, about an Asian American girl um, whose parents are tough on her. Her friend is gay, um, and like what it's like to traverse being like a middle schooler. But in the pilot, an openly gay middle schooler. I'm proud of you, Disney. Oh well, it's and it, it was a big high time. Well, they had him come out, and then actually in the the finale when they got canceled, they had time to do the finale. He actually got to like he started dating his crush and they had a cute little kiss. And so it wasn't they weren't sexualizing teenagers, but it was like they were normal. They were they were making 
it was, I don't want to say normifying because that's a wicked word. They were making, they were just showing teens that they all are valid and they all exist. Um, but what you find out in the first episode is that her sister, her older sister, who's not around, is actually her mom. And her mom doesn't really know who her dad is. And she's been raised by her grandparents who are, um, who are an interracial couple. And so it's this idea of like, all these families are, are correct. And all these families are justified and loving. And, Mm -hmm. and I think it's really important. And even with modern family, which has been ABC for all we can say about, you know, archetypes and, and, and those kinds of things. Disney's tried to do these little things where they show that all families are beautiful and loving and worthwhile, which I think is important. And and this movie, again, is a move into that step. It is a step towards that. But, Maddie, I will also say the one implied gay relationship in this movie, um, if we can even call it a relationship, the one implied gay character in this movie is when Edward's going up and down the stairs and he knocks on that man's door. Oh, yes. And- <laughs> it's handled really, really poor. That's, there There are a couple. So this, so Heather, you've moved us right into our kind of final segment of what I always like to oh, talk fantastic. to everybody about. And we've, we've touched on a few things. And this is how does the movie stack up in 2020? Um, I don't want to say from an aspect of PC culture, but from an aspect of we just know to do better now. There are a couple yeah. of those moments of that one where I went, Great. Uh, You know, as a plus size male identifying person um, or people identify me as male, um, you know, having him be the one that opens the door in leather and like he's not super handsome and Edward looks a little creeped out. Um, Mm -hmm. It does bother me a little, but like that was also the peak of humor at that time. And so again, it's not right, but it was a it was a moment of the era. And you know what I will say? That is what most gay men thought of each other as well. So, Ugh. you know, it's a it's a tongue pop moment, it's if you hard. will. It is it's it hard. is hard. And also, I I didn't. There is an assumption at the end when Nathaniel is writing his book and he's becoming the smarmy author that he has those two hot women on his shoulders Mm -hmm. and all of these dumpy looking straight dudes in line for how to survive the evil witches in their lives. Those are those two things where I went, "Eh, yeah, could, could we do this a little better? And now I think they would. Now I think, though, honestly, my my thing would go if they remade this. Would they make Nathaniel the gay character? Maybe. <laughs> well, or probably not, though, Maddie. Because let's think about them making LeFou a gay character. Which, when I first heard about, I was so excited, and then when mm-hmm. I saw it, I was like, it, it didn't even try. register. No, it was, didn't even register. It was. Yeah. It made me really. And listen, I I love Josh Gad. I really do, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way it was being promoted was as this watershed moment. But I wouldn't even call it blinking you miss it. It was just suddenly mm-hmm. at the ballroom there was a guy in his arms and they kept dancing. Like right. Well, so and what? It's, that it's, makes it it, well, and it's another moment of playing up archetype. So mm-hmm. so it, it is rumored that in the Jungle Cruise movie, which looks amazing. It's coming oh, out it this really summer. Does. Um, I'm so excited it comes for that out one. actually when this airs, it'll be out in just a couple weeks. Um, uh-huh. And so, but Jack Whitehall is playing a foppishly gay character. Now, knowing that it's taking place in Victorian England and he is supposed to be a man of status, it does make sense that he would have super foppish qualities because yeah. of the time and status and what that meant for men of a certain thing. But like Jack's a great actor, but he's not a queer actor. So it's like, why did we write 
And again, That's this is thing. the movie's not representation, out yet. but not with right. an actor who represents that culture, and that's where I think things. Well, and I mean, just listen. I I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but how many Disney villains come off initially as villainous because they possess right. queer qualities? Right. Right. right? Um, we can even go. I I'm immediately thinking of. Um, Actually, uh, Radcliffe and Wiggins. Oh right? yeah. Um, oh yeah. I mean, there's that. There's also uh, Prince John. Um, Radigan, Jafar, Radigan, Scar, Jafar, Ursula. Ursula. Yes, um, my queen, my mother. No, I mean, love, even even Gaston, in in some ways, there is oh, yeah. there is still some queer coding. Here. The only one I'd say of the Renaissance that doesn't have it is McLeach from Rescuers Down Under. Um, mm-hmm. Frollo from Hunchback because he's terrifying, and um, uh, oh, oh, maybe Clayton, uh, the guy from Clayton from I was Tarzan. about to say from Tarzan. Yeah, from Tarzan. but there, mm-hmm. but even then, like there is a foppishness to Clayton because he's a man of status, not because of queerness, mm-hmm. and it's a hard line of also, yeah, involve characters and it's a natural part of their story but like don't write them as archetypes because i also as a queer person i don't care when straight people play queer people as long as it's respectful like i if if you are just playing your character in the most honest way i don't care what it's because then i'm like all gay people should be able to play straight characters and all trans actors should be able to play cis characters and like it should should just be the right person for the job um but it should always be done with respect and with um decorum which apparently is still a lot to ask for when it comes to queer people and people of color um so yes and actually kind of going back to that with with enchanted um i guess if i had one other critique about it Actually, it goes back to how does she know? Mm-hmm. One could argue that there are a lot of stereotypes in yeah. the street performers, frankly. You have the mariachi band. Um, you have the skateboarders. Mm-hmm. And you have the steel drum players. Mm-hmm. Are we representing culture or are we approximating culture? I would. Uh, my only thing with that one is I would say because I can, you can see all of those things while walking down the street in New York at the corner of like 50, 59th and, and fifth Avenue. I'd say that because it's a specifically New York movie, I don't think about that. Um, but I do think it's one of those things that it's, it's an expected, it's encoded on the city. And so maybe it's, it's because it's in New York and not because they were making it multicultural, but because they were like, what are things we're going to see at the entrance of central park at Columbus circle that would then help us lead into a song. Um, and I, and I can understand that Maddie. I think for me, it's just in light of knowing that all of the leads are white yes. and cishet, the fact that there are so few characters or people of color in this film that that is the largest representation that we have and they do seem to be in i'm gonna say in stereotyped roles that's my only complaint no that i also i also will agree with you there absolutely 100 percent. and i think that's that weird tipping point because also anybody that's only been to new york once or twice is going to go oh yeah that's new york that's all a new york thing but i think for those of us that have lived there and have seen it or you know we're in entertainment where hopefully people of merit are all fighting for representation for people, their peers who don't look like them. I mean, I've said for a while now that like, if I don't see a movie starring gorgeous white people, I'm fine with that for a nice long time. Cause like we, we likewise, gorgeous. It's fine. we've, 
We've gorgeous white folk have had their day. Yeah, and it's, it's you know, it's and it should be honestly when I go to the theater or when I go to a movie, I want to see the story. The story is what matters to me. So you know, it's one of those things. But you know what? I'm an only child, Maddie. Um, yeah. So it's weird to me sometimes when I when I hear people who complain about, um, for example, the actress who's going to be playing Ariel in The Little Mermaid being oh, African American. Yeah. And the, the, I knew there were gonna there was gonna be a little bit of uproar. I didn't quite Ooh. expect that much. I shouldn't be surprised, but I was. But as someone who's an only child, there's a big part of me that's like, I'm sorry, did your parents not teach you to share? Yeah, yeah. Like, did your parents not teach you to share uh, representation, media, that anyone can be a princess? Um, I I think just it's my parents, really. I think it's because <laughs> there's systemically this issue that like whiteness is preferred or lightness is preferred because even in so many other cultures people who are lighter skin tone are seen as more worthwhile and so i'm you know it's that's to me like why i hate seeing white productions of once on this island because it's not it's not just it's not the class but it's also the the skin tone that is really imperative to that story and And even aida which is a hugely fictionalized mm, version mm -hmm. but you'll see you've you and i both seen productions of Aida where everybody's white and they're starting to sing the gods love Nubia and I'm like hmm. I'm I'm, <laughs> ca- I'm calling out Montclair New, uh, University in New Jersey who a few years ago had an all-white ensemble and decided it was good to put mop heads on top of the ensemble to be the Nubians um, and then gave a speech at USITT about how they overcame this challenge but they couldn't understand why everybody got upset um, oh, but God, the humanity, I know, but on the, but on the upside of that, um, there, you know, we're on the breath of a revival of Aida where there will not be white people playing the Egyptians, which I think is really important. Now okay. we do need to, now with that story, we do need to identify that the Egyptians would have been a lighter skin tone than the Nubians, which again is where some classism and, and, uh, colorism came in, but it is at no point a white story, like right. sit down, sit down. Now, white folks let's let let a let a beautiful sassy woman of color sing my my strongest suit like mm-hmm. i've heard enough white girls butcher that song over the last 25 years that i've like, been a white girl <laughs> butchering that song i've learned my lesson i've moved on it's fine <laughs> um i mean it's a great song it's a great song and you know it's that's the conversation as an actress of like well what can you have in your book what couldn't you have in your book or like you know, Sharon A. Scott did originate that role. So, like, keep it in your book. It's fine. But, like, maybe you shouldn't get cast as that role anymore. You know, it's just those yeah. those steps or of, like... Or, like, Jonathan Price in Miss Saigon, the most classic example uh, of all. Like, yellow face or not, shouldn't have been you. No. But also, I'm not sure B.D. Wong handled that in the best way either, so... Is the, that that is a whole other thing. Maybe I should start. That's a, theater a whole po- other episode. Maybe I should start a theater podcast where we just sip tea about old theater drama. Um, oh, I but, would. If you'll have me again, I would yes. absolutely be down for some tea. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Heather, it has been such a Daddy. delight having you on the show and doing this Thank episode. You for having me. Well, I hope I didn't ramble too much. But oh I, I no, it was perfect this movie i'm really glad we got to talk about the things that we got to talk about and i also just enjoy spending time with you i, I do you, too man. i miss you too Yay. do you have anything coming up that you'd like to pitch for our listeners at home 
Oh, goodness. You know what? Like you, Maddie, I'm in grad school, so I have exams coming that up. struggle. <laughs> <laughs> so if the folks want to find you online and see more about you, and you have a, you have a very wide and varied career, uh, and you've done oh, some really God, cool things. So where, you, can, where can the folks find you online if they're looking for you? The best place to find me would be Instagram because I am a basic white girl um, <laughs> who's trying to do better. Um, but my Instagram handle is at heather.gilbert underscore because somebody took my name. Uh, I am on Twitter sometimes. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's dark and scary and Donald Trump lives there. I'm there to exist. Uh, <laughs> Um, I do have a Weebly website, heathergilbert.weebly.com, which after grad school, I hope to get a really great paying job and get rid of the Weebly. Um, but I'm also on IMDb. If I have any uh, films coming up, you're free to check me out there. Or by all means, um, buy Lake Placid versus Anaconda so I can get my parents Christmas presents this year. That would be <laughs> the best gift of them all. God bless those um, residual checks. Oh, I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> Legit, man. Legit. <laughs> well, great. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Of course, honey. Thank you for having me. As always, thanks for tuning in, dreamers. You all have kept landing us in the top charts of U.S. and Australia every week, and we cannot thank you enough. Your five-star ratings and your thoughtful reviews keep us there. Now, if you haven't left those yet, head over to Apple Podcasts or our friends at Podchaser and leave those now. You can share us with your friends on social media and pledging just $2 a month. That's it. Just $2 a month on Patreon. Helps keep the show going and it helps me bring on more artists, helps us expand. We've got new things in the works coming for you and just helps us bring the best show we possibly can for you every time. Now, big things to look forward to. March 15th of 2020, Dole Whip and Dreams live at SwamCon at the University of Florida. That's right. Dole Whip and Dreams live, 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 live from SwamCon at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida. It is at 5 p.m. on March 15th. Come and join us as we record our live episode with fabulous guests, prizes, trivia, and maybe even a costume contest with some awesome things to take home. Now, for more information about that, you can check out Dull Whip and Dreams and SwampCon on Facebook. And the best part is, y'all, it's free. That's right. It's motherfucking free. Reach out to us for more information. Now, may your days be filled with Dull Whip and Dreams.